have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I am Strangely, and this is the podcast. Thank you so much for... I was going to say tuning in, but it's not really a tuning in. You downloaded this, so thank you so much for downloading this and then potting in. There's got to be a great word that some better podcast than mine came up with. If you, if you know it, please write in and tell me about it. What has happened this week? It's, it's sort of been a slow news week for the popular zeitgeist. Um, I guess some stuff almost happened and then it didn't happen. I don't know. I, I was very, very busy this weekend. I went on a bicycle tour with my friend Bellowing, so I only heard about the news from my mom, who hears about it from the television. So I guess I'm kind of out of the loop. Sorry, there's no current zeitgeist. If you tune in to hear me comment on the zeitgeist, too bad, because I don't really talk about that. So let's move on. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? The Magician and the Card Sharp by Carl Johnson. I love learning and performing magic tricks almost as much as I love learning the lore of magicians. I love tales of what performers got away with, and this book is full of them. In the 1930s, a magician named Di Vernon went searching for a legendary card cheat named Alan Kennedy in the hopes that the latter would teach him the extraordinary move he had invented. The center deal had long been thought to be impossible, and yet the code had been cracked by a two-bit small-town hustler simply because he had never stopped to consider that it might be impossible. Unlike most books burdened by the ponderous weight of needless details which often crop up after extensive research, Johnson's book sparkles with the kind of prose one usually sees in novels. Although there are many books written about why audiences enjoy magic, and oceans more about how it works and how to do it, there are few about why magicians enjoy magic. This book is all about that drive, and a cracking good read to boot. My guest this week is Jory Phillips, who is one of my favorite comedians. She's a delightful person that I met at the Nugget Fringe Festival a couple of years ago, and she came through on a tour with our mutual friend Trevor, who you'll get to hear from next week on this podcast, and they did a show here in my recording studio. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to play you Jory's stand-up comedy set, and then after that, you can hear the chat I had with Jory. So here's the set. Anyway, without further ado, I'm very excited to introduce your opening act all the way from a tiny island I'm not allowed to name during shows. Somewhere in the Gulf in Canada, please welcome Jory Phillips. Hi, everybody. I had a dream like this once, performing for my entire family and like four other people in a <laughs> tiny room. I'm just kidding, but it's going to be a nightmare that I have from now on. I hope nobody's nervous. There's a lot of cameras pointing in here. Um, I'm sure all of you know that the cameraman is my boyfriend, Cayman, and that the camera is not on. This is just a weird sex thing that we do. So welcome. You are now part of my bedroom. Something I never wanted to say to my parents. <laughs> Please plug your ears and go back to Canada. Um, so we have been on the road for like 70 million days at this point. It's like every time somebody's like, what did you do last week? And I'm like, last week, a month ago, two years ago, two days ago, what state were we in? I know what state I'm in. It's confusion. I do not know what is going on. But you can tell from the smell and the appearance that we are traveling performers. And it's great. You know, it's like, I feel like when I was a kid, I was like, I want to see the world, you know, I want to, I want to journey, I want to travel, and instead of it being like a wish to the universe, it was like a wish to a genie, and the genie's like, okay, guess what, you're going to be in a Prius with two other people, all smushed together. It's very weird, like, being in a car with somebody that you're in a relationship with, and also Trevor, 
you know? <laughs> because it's like you have to take votes when we want to have some alone time. It's like we're driving up the freeway and it's like every couple miles, it's like, go to Love's cleanest bathrooms in the USA. I'm like, hey, anybody want to go see if they really are the cleanest bathrooms in the USA? I don't know. Maybe we could check. That would be cool. Just hanging out together for a minute. It's weird. I feel like I've met a lot of people on this journey, like lots of people that I keep meeting and immediately forgetting their names because I have a problem with that. But I also never know what to do when they come towards me like for a hug, you know, because there are so many ways that that could go. There's always like there's a hug where they hug you and then there's a hug where they hug you and you have to tap because they're not letting go. And then you keep tapping. And then there's a hug where you go in for a hug and they throw in a hand and suddenly you're giving the, which is weird because I didn't know I was allowed to do that. So I don't know how to do that. There was, there was literally a man uh, in New Orleans and he like went for a handshake and I got all weird about it. And he's like, do you know how to do the cool handshake? And I was like, what's the cool handshake? And he was like, he's like, watch. And he like did this little slap slap turn thing. And he's like, now you know, do that in New York. I was like, I will. <laughs> Thank you. You're just like TV promised. <laughs> but it's weird because like people come in for these moves and I don't know what to do about it. I'm a very physically awkward person. Like the other day, we're in the car. We're driving in the car. Trevor is driving the car. Trevor is always the one driving the car. Um, so I'm, I'm being a co-pilot holding a bag of chips like you do as a co-pilot. And Trevor is like digging into the chips, you know, just going deeper and deeper. And there's this point when there is nothing but a thin layer of bag to stop Trevor's hand from touching my hand. And then it happened and there's just this delicate little like caress. And I'm like, what do I do? Is this love? Do I acknowledge this? Like I turn around at came and I'm like, what do we do? Wanna go see if they're the cleanest bathrooms? I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But it's cool. I feel like I'm a really good traveling companion, but I feel like Cayman and Trevor have different ideas about that, you know, because I'm one of those people that like collects things and then like personifies them so that they can't be gotten rid of. Like we found this little boat and I was like, we're keeping that. And they're like, really? And I was like, its name is the friendship and it stands for friendship. And so then I velcroed it to the dash. Now it has a cactus in it. The cactus's name is Patrick. <laughs> He is captain of the friendship, but it's great, you know, and it's like every day I'm just bringing more stuff in. I like walk up to the car with stuff in my hands. They're like, what's that, Joy? And I'm like, nothing. <laughs> Did you notice there's a tree over there? You should look at that for a minute. Like, what's in your hand, Joy? It's a rock, but I named him Timothy. <laughs> Please don't make me get rid of him. <laughs> it's fine, though. We took out a seat, so Timothy stayed. <laughs> I really appreciate that part of it. It's um, it's hard looking at me to imagine. I know my entire family knows what I looked like as a young person, but um, I was never one of those girls that like looked like a girl, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like when other girls were doing things like developing and like getting periods, I just kept getting taller and taller and taller. Like I have this theory that the little guys in my head like fucked it up. Like they were not paying attention. Then one day they're on their coffee break and they have their feet up and they're just like, oh no, <laughs> What do you mean? Oh, no. Well, uh, it says F. Like for female. Yes, like for female. Okay. Okay. It's fine. What do we do? What, what do you mean? What do we do? We just start it. Start it? Now? But we were making him tall for basketball and hunting. So they did, you know. But there was a brief period in my life where I got surred a lot. And it used to really bother me. You know, I used to be like, I am not a sir. I am a ma'am. But now that I am an adult woman, I get mammed a lot. And I really don't like it. You know, like, I thought at least I would be a miss or a near miss, like somewhere in there. But no, it's ma'am town. And I don't like ma'am because ma'am has this, like, negative connotation. It is always like, ma'am, you can't raise your voice like that. Ma'am, you have to pay for those items. Ma'am, get off the table, you know? It's never, sir, get off the table. The other day I was doing a stand-up bit, and I, I was, it was an open mic, and they, like, called my name. They're like, you're on deck. So I, like, stood up, standing at the back of the room, just, like, waiting, and this waiter comes up to me, and he's like, ma'am, you can't stand there. And I was like, I'm on deck. And he's like, 
I'm so sorry. I didn't know women could tell jokes. <laughs> well, surprise, we can, I think. <laughs> I don't know. It's been a lot of that. America's been really fun, but it's nice because it like, it always reminds me that I'm a second-class citizen still, because in Canada, I forget sometimes. You know, in Canada, I'm like, I'm a human being. <laughs> but then in America, they're like, sit down, ma'am. You're not funny. <laughs> oh, jokes about America. So where's everybody from? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Trevor, <laughs> Trevor, can I keep going for a second, because my whole family's here? Yeah. I'm just going to do the whole show. This is my show now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just you shut it on your way out. If I do what? Oh God, no, I can't do your whole show. I don't have the lipstick for it. I do. I know a bit of it. I know. I know a little bit of it. I won't do it. I'm not gonna do it before your show. Um, so I've been working on a bit about camping, and it's not super tight, but I'm gonna try it on you guys. So we've been camping a lot. Right? Which sounds really fun, but is not. It's like literally the worst thing ever. Because when you're a kid, you go camping and then you leave and go to places. Like you're going camping to go to the lake or to go to the beach or to go on a hike. But when you're us, you're going camping because you don't have enough money to pay for anything else. You know, like we have literally been sneaking into state parks like <laughs> after hours, setting up our tent and then setting an alarm for sunrise and then leaving. We've been caught twice. <laughs> Both times we're like, oh, I'm so sorry, park ranger. <laughs> I was not aware that you had to pay for this ground that we own in this country. I thought our tax money was doing that. Surprise. Surprise. We've been calling it enjoying the great outdoors, which is great because that's what we're doing. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's like camping is weird, too, because every time you go in you're building a new house and it really should make you feel like you know like a frontiersman like very like but instead it just makes me feel like I'm moving every time like I pull out all these boxes and I'm like where's the tent the tent's over here where's the sleeping bag it's under your feet like every day like I am the master I like an old person who's forgotten you know like, where's the tent you're in it oh god no it's too late I'm ready. I'm ready to rock Got the wiggles out. This is me wiggling. I look so tired. This is gonna be bad video of like how tired you're making me. Okay. So I'm sitting here with my friend Jory Phillips, and Jory, you are in day seventy-four of if your you say so. giant like nation spanning tour doing comedy that is a true fact you are a stand-up comedian from tiny island in the middle of nowhere canada yes in fact i am <laughs> how much of this am i getting right um it's all correct so far what what is the name of the island i don't know if i can say it i mean i can say it it's easy to pronounce i'll, I'll but... if you end up saying yeah disparaging can you believe things later, it yeah i'll totally believe it what's the what is the name of the island okay, it's from? called island but the reason that I ask for the bleeping is because the people on are super like, they're like, we don't want people. Like, you know, you went to Nevada County uh -huh. at some point, right? And people yeah. are like, there's all these cool river spots, uh -huh. but we won't tell you about them. Yeah. We'll maybe take you to one of them and then we can show you, but you can't ever tell anybody. Our island vibes like that sometimes. It's, it's very similar to the way magicians are like, I will show you how to do this. Yeah. But if I ever hear that you showed anybody else, <laughs> I will never show you how to do another thing ever again. You. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you do a lot of, uh, you do a lot of material about Island <laughs> in your standup. Like I've heard I you do. do a lot of material about that. Yeah. Why is that? Like, is it just because it's where you're from or is it because now that you've lived away for a while, you see the inherent like comedy in the tiny little place that you came from? I absolutely have always seen the comedy in it. Um, and I think a lot of people who live there do just because it's, it's one of the highest artists per capita, like areas uh -huh. in British Columbia. And don't quote me on that, but I know it's real. Um, so it's a group of all of these educated people who all have their own trade, very much like this building, but stuck on a rock together. So it's always these contradictions, like people have opinions and they're always strong opinions. Mm -hmm. So there's so many contrasting things, but then at the heart of it is, it's super rural. Right. And I've just always found that really funny. 
Yeah, where it's like they they have the 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 art predilections and opinions of like a Fifth Avenue like yeah. Broadway genius. I'm I'm throwing New York words at the wall. And yet, <laughs> like they're living in a house where they if they don't spend an hour a day splitting wood, they will freeze to death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like. I don't know. There's just there's so much of the things that crack me up are like there's a bulletin board and I'm on it all the time and it's it's a Facebook bulletin board. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of the conversation is whose dog is off the leash in town, but everybody knows whose dog it is. Yeah. Every, you were like, there's enough people that you can recognize the dog, know the owner. You could call them up and say, hey, I saw your dog off the leash. Like maybe don't do that because there's livestock. But instead it's like all of these like... There was a dog on the beach today <laughs> chasing a deer into the water. And it's like, what are you What are you doing? You're all adults. You all have communication skills. And I love it. And that's it's my inc- favorite place in the world. That's so incredible. Just that, like, there's, there's something so precious about a small, isolated, like, community like yeah. that. It's like, these are the problems. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, uh, I'm a big fan of Letterkenny. Yeah, I love that. And every episode of that starts out like, there are 2,500 people in the town of Letterkenny, Ontario. (laughs) These are their problems. Exactly. You are a comedian who is a lady type person. That is true. I have the bits here, (laughs) here, and here. In case you you can't see that through the radio, I pointed at my head and then my general body area. (laughs) The GBA, as uh, the kids call it these days. So, as a, a a lady type comedian, like stereotypically stand up, mm. especially I feel like storytelling based stand up is such a, a male dominated field. Like it's usually guys, and they're talking about some crazy woman they dated or whatever. Yes. How do you personally feel that you are inverting that and addressing that, other than just by being? Yeah. On this tour, we've done a lot of open mics, and what you were just talking about has been something that I've noticed a lot, is in the rooms of open mics, the most women I've ever seen is three mm-hmm. um, in an open mic with, like, 20 people. And th- these are on three on stage, like, who are in the yes. lineup? Okay. Like, three performing. Yeah. Um, and so very often, and this is going to sound, this is going to sound, like, elitist and douchey, but so very often they get up there, and I'm really excited... And then they just start doing bits about, my vagina smells bad. I have, like, a fish vagina. And I get that. I understand that. Because that is one way of, like, subverting it, like you're Mm -hmm. talking about. Because so much of bro comedy is like, my dick's like a little face. And so then ladies (laughs) go up there and they're like, well, my vagina's a mouth. You know? It's like, we're all playing the bro game. Yeah. So I think, at least in my own expression of comedy, and there's nothing wrong with telling jokes about your vagina, but I feel like we've got to the point where lady comics you know, headed by so many of these, like, aggressive and vulgar and, like, going with that point, we've got that area, you know, we've forded that river. We're allowed to do gross humor now. Mm -hmm. So I like to just kind of go past that a little bit more and just talk about things as a real person, not trying to shock anybody, not trying to do anything, um, because I notice that that is lacking. In what I have seen. That's not saying the people who are doing it professionally. There's a lot of people professionally on Netflix and stuff that are doing that. Telling stories. Existing in the world. But in these open mics. So consistently it seems to be like. Newer female comics are just trying to be like. I'm here. I want to be part of the guys team. And I don't think we need to be part of the guys team. I think we just need to exist. And do it and tell stories. There's stop making that noise there's there's such a difference between being shocking or surprising and being gross and people often conflate those two things yeah like if i wanted to do something shocking and memorable that no one would ever forget in a show i could walk out on stage pull out a gun and blow my brains out yeah like that would be a very memorable show everyone present would talk about it for the rest of their lives like that would have a huge impact but the thing is, I think the really gifted performers are people who leave that level of impact without the corresponding level of harm done to the audience or, yeah. you know, the meanness. Like, it's the same thing. You can, you can, but my, <laughs> I, years ago, I saw 
the actress Zosha Mamet jogging in Central Park when I was in New York City. Mm. And I was a big fan of the show Girls at the time. And yeah. I'm also a big fan of David Mamet. So it's like, oh, so much Mamet. You're like, I had this Mamet. I had this dream. I would meet Zosha Mamet. We'd get married. And then I'd like David Mamet would be my father-in-law. Oh, my this God. This is like ridiculous. But I saw her jogging and I texted my sister. And I was like, oh, my God. I just saw Zosha Mamet jogging. Like, I left her alone. It was just in the distance. But I yeah. texted my sister. My sister immediately texts back all caps. Oh, my God. Punch her in the face. What? And I was like, so what funny. the hell? Why yeah. would you say that? So I'm like, what the heck? And my sister is like, well, she definitely will never forget meeting you. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it's like. She's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, she's not wrong. I, I'm sure the, the New York. Uh the state of New York's penal justice system would also yeah, never, never forget, forget me meeting Zosha Mamet. But uh, Zosha Mamet, if you're listening to this, I respect your work and you're great. You're uh, not going to get a face punch. Yeah, you just, don't deserve it. The story was shared for educational purposes only. <laughs> but the thing is, I feel like so many stand-up comedians are telling jokes in that way. Yeah. Where it's just like, you know, my dick is this. Where isn't there a way to get the same level of reaction and excitement and feeling out of an audience without going there. I used to finish a lot of my shows by, you know, setting something on fire, like mm-hmm. juggling with fire or lighting a playing card on fire or something. There's fire. And someone challenged me, a, a mentor was just like, can you get the same level of noise and reaction and make the same amount of tips without lighting anything on fire? Yeah. And that, I know it's a really long winded way of, ex- of explaining that I kind of get what you're saying that like it doesn't have to be about yeah. your bits. And I totally, I feel like it's not, like, I don't mean that as a disrespect to anybody, because there are a lot of people who do more shock humor like that, but I just feel like in my own stuff, I've never felt the need. I've always felt on the same level with the guys club Mm -hmm. my entire life, so I don't feel like I have to go up there and be like, I'm the woman with the guys. I'm just like, I'm the jewelry. You've got jewelry now. Like, I don't need to prove a femininity or to prove like an anti-femininity in my right. performance. I just kind of try and be the person that I am and not be like the crazy kid, you know, like the person who does stuff just because like the person exactly that you're talking about, like light stuff on fire to be like, I'm interesting now, you know, not saying that you're that person, but is there, is there a, con- like a joke construction that you really appreciate? Like, either something that you've done that you're really proud of the crafting mm. of or something you've heard where it's just, like, that, you know, that you point to and you're, like, this is, this is it. This is What I me. think good comedy is. Yeah. That's so hard because we were talking about just a second ago, like, I don't do, I don't really do jokes. And, like, twice on this tour, Trevor's been asked to teach a, a workshop on stand-up comedy. And I sat <laughs> in both times. And both times, um, people have said, how do you write jokes? How do you do jokes? And Trevor's process, Uh and I'm only doing this compare and contrast so you can see where I fit in the world, but Trevor's process is write it all out, word for word, Mm -hmm. punctuation, paragraph, sentence structure, in the exact way that they are going to say it. My way of doing comedy is I have a bazillion ideas above my head. Some of them I think are cool stories. I tell them as stories to people. I might tell it to you or I might tell it to somebody at a cafe. If they look interested, I'm like, cool, that is a fun story. Or I might not tell it to them. Then... I write like key points and then I go and do it a bunch and then I judge from audience reaction. So I never sit down and like write a joke. I'm just like, this is funny and it makes me happy. (laughs) So I don't have insight into like looking at other people. When I see other people tell stories really well, like Mm -hmm. I think Patton Oswalt is a really good storyteller um, and points out things in a really interesting way. When I see that, I get inspired, but I don't analyze it as like a structure at all. That's, I think that is one of the things that lends certain comedians to being often quoted and referenced. Mm. Like, I find myself pulling from Patton a lot mm-hmm. because Patton is telling stories. Yes. And even if he's kind of setting up this whole thing where he's going to be like talking about Genghis Khan's nutsack or something, like he's still, it's in the part of a story. Yeah. There's, a, there's an emotional resonance to him getting there, which I... And also the, just the way you describe your process is like that idea of telling a story and telling it a bunch of times and sort of finding the, finding the heart of it, finding yeah. the bullet points that need to happen. 
Making all this noise over here. All of that. (laughs) Oh, what you're saying is so interesting. It's so. Cayman is the one who kicked it. (laughs) It, It's open. (laughs) Now you gotta wipe that up. Oh, this will be great for the the Patreon people who get to watch the unedited video. We'll just leave that in. Gotta make a winner. That's right. It's a winner. Winner and dunner. I I feel a kinship with your process. Just that Mm. idea of finding the bit, not by writing it out and being like, this is the complete bit. Here it is. I hope it works. But being like, ooh, last night I tried pausing for two seconds. Tonight I didn't pause at all. Yeah. And they laughed harder tonight. So maybe I'll keep that. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about traveling all around the world too is like different places react differently. Yeah. Different rooms, different people. So how many shows have you done in the last couple of months um almost every day and i've been doing a crazy thing in the idea of the tour was to perform in every single state but that was not possible because some venues didn't want to book us um writing with trevor's show is interesting uh some shows trevor booked because this was all set up before i agreed to go on it so some shows Uh trevor booked that they were already jumping on somebody else's show so i can't jump in there i can't perform or there's a local opener, so I have five minutes and they have five, you know, ten minutes and then Trevor performs. So I have in every single state that I haven't performed gone to the forest or gone to the Burger King drive through that we were at and performed five minutes of stand-up to the air, to the people. And I always tried to try something new and do a new thing and I count that as a show. I count that as performing. Uh-huh. Trevor does not. Um, for them, it's audience-based. For me, it's feeling-based. So with that in mind... I have performed almost every single day of the last three months. That's so funny that that it would be audience based. This some like I'm I'm gonna have Trevor sit in the hot seat soon. Yeah, so I'll be like, ask Trevor, him the same question. Yeah, just, <laughs> be like Joy told some shit on you. <laughs> she had a violently angry look in her eye. But like the. the I always say to my audiences, like, thank you so much for coming. I would do this whether you were here or not. Yeah. The fact that you're here makes it less sad or, you know, some kind yeah. of like self-deprecating thing like that. But I just sit and play accordion and make myself laugh. Yeah. And everything I do on stage, particularly the jokes or the funnies that I'm doing is that it's something that I thought was funny. Exactly. So like, what is, what is, what is it about, you know, going out and performing to the woods? Is it just you just kind of working something out or like is there some deeper meaning to it for you honestly a lot of the time it's it's that i set out that i was like i'm gonna perform in all 50 states so if i don't have people for that then i will perform it to someone but sometimes it's like like i was just talking about i don't write down a lot of the stuff that i'm processing that i think is funny so if Mm -hmm. i don't get a chance to tell it to anybody or anything then it will float away to the ether so you know performing to the trees i was like we've just camped a whole ton here's a bunch of thoughts that I've had about camping. I don't like camping as much as an adult as I did when I was a kid. Like it's not as funny as it would be if I'd actually worked it through, done it a bunch and were performing it for an audience. But it's more of this process of being like, this is what my experience was in this place. This is how I would write a set on it. These are sort of the bare bones of things that I find that are funny. Um, And then just getting that, listening to myself saying it out loud experience because I feel like, There's a difference for me between like conversational talking and like performative talking. So if I'm saying I am going to perform this, then I need to be performing it for something. So the trees are my something and I'm actually going to perform it and I'm going Mm -hmm. to exist and try and be in that space. And it's a good practice to be like, I don't feel like it because there's no one here, but I'll still do it anyway. Well, that, that idea of there being no one here. I mean, I've seen fringe performers canceling their shows because only two tickets sold or whatever. And yeah. It's like two tickets, you lucky piece of shit. Yeah, like, there's people. There's Yeah, somebody wants to see you. And those two people could tell four people. Yeah. If your show's any good. Like, I, th- I find that so fascinating. That idea of your memory almost being your notebook where you're keeping mm-hmm. track of these things. Like, I remembered saying this to the trees and thought, oh, how, wouldn't it be great if I said that to people? Yeah. Later. <laughs> Real people. Did, did the trees react? I, I there forgot was a, to ask. a slight breeze that That's blew a... through. Um, and I looked down at one point and I saw like an empty like bud can. And I was like, cool. All right. You're my kind of crowd, you know? Yeah. Like, That's my jam. <laughs> Outdoorsy. <laughs> 
<laughs> bunch of drunk trees just uh, just out there in the woods. What is your favorite show that you've done this tour so far? Oh, like performing wise. Mm-hmm. So we were in Idaho. We hit a deer. It put us behind schedule. So we arrived with like less than ten minutes to spare for our show. Uh huh. There was like two people in the audience, and they were people that we knew from Grass Valley who had moved to Idaho. And I was like, "Great, this is another one of those shows. It's fine." I was super flustered. I was oh, literally yeah. like shaking because just I had had coffee, and I shouldn't have coffee. It makes me twitchy. Um, and then we hit a deer, which was like way more coffee than I ever should have ingested. So I was like on edge. I had no time to get in my head performer brain. So I just leaned into like manic feeling and just went up there and just did this whole set about me as a traveling companion mm-hmm. that I had sort of worked out. Um, I'd done it a couple times, but nothing really hashed out. And the audience was like really into it and they were very responsive and it was all about how I like to collect things as we travel and then I always give them names because if it has a name then they can't make me get rid of it um and it just it felt really good and it felt like I was playing and I wanted to go longer because they were such a responsive crowd Mm -hmm. and we have not had a lot of that I can name maybe three shows um that we've had a crowd that I've been like yes I want to do longer like I want to be up here for half an hour 45 minutes I would love if Trevor broke their vocal cords right now today (laughs) And it's my show. It's my turn. Finally, I'm in the spotlight. Um, I'm just kidding. I wish you no ill. But yeah, those kind of crowds yeah. fire me up. So every one of those is the best show I've ever had. And every one that's not is a terrible show and I should quit. <laughs> is what we're working with. Do you do you really feel that in those shows where like you have an unresponsive audience that you genuinely want to quit and not make it anymore? That's It's a bit hyperbolic. Um, and I know I just said it which is why it's hyperbolic because I kind of exist in that realm. But um, yeah, sometimes there'll be an audience and it'll be like a a bunch of people, but they won't be playful and they won't have expressive faces or maybe I can't see them or Mm -hmm. can't hear them properly. And it feels so bad afterwards. And I've had a couple of shows where Cayman's been like, that was great. And I've been like, that was truly terrible. And it felt awful. And it just feels so naked and so vulnerable. It's not like a desire to immediately go back. But I am a very emotionally expressive person, whether I like it or not. Like I have very little control. I tend to like feel things in the fullness of what they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I'm bummed out, I'll be really sad and I'll be really bummed out. But I also have lived with myself for a really long time. So I give myself, you know, like, okay, feel your thing whatever think about something else 20 minutes later i'll totally be fine i can look back on that experience be like yeah i was really bummed out why didn't it feel good i can reassess it i'm not gonna i don't carry it with me but i do let myself feel those lows because otherwise they'll just build up i definitely seek to do the same thing i i think we were raised by a generation that just kind of pushed it all down deep inside yeah and I feel like a lot of our peers let it out too much. Like it's just everywhere all the time and it's other people's problem. Yeah. And the people I tend to connect with, like a lot of my performer friends, people like you, there's this balance where you're allowing yourself to feel it and you're making the people who care about you aware. It's not like it is also your problem. Yeah. All of you. I I try to be self-aware about that because I have been myself my entire life and there's been very little changing in the intensity of my emotional like expression my entire life so it's it has been a long journey of me coming to the point where I'm like I can't do anything about it maybe it's something you know maybe I have a disorder I don't know (laughs) I don't know I don't have time to figure it out I don't have money to figure it out so we're working with what we have has performing helped you in figuring that out yeah because you know you're especially the kind of comedy you do where it's jokes about your actual life and your your feelings and experiences and trips to the hospital or whatever like things that have happened to you you're in a space that it's very easy to overshare yeah and yet because you're you have that live feedback loop of an audience reacting you're learning about those limits yeah yeah definitely i think Uh, performing has kind of always been a place where I've had 
that outlet to be able to figure that out. And I've been performing since you didn't ask. I'm sure everybody's very curious. I've, <laughs> um, I've been performing since I was like six, uh-huh. uh, pretty much from then until now without stopping. And I've always felt this weird disconnect from the people who are like, I need to perform or I'll die because I've never felt that. I've just always been doing it because there is no other, like you could take me away from all performative things and I would still perform. I would still be expressive when I talk and I would still like play with words the way that I do. And I would still exist in the same realm I did, even if there was no audience. I feel like it is just the way that I express my thing, you know, (laughs) whatever my thing is. No, that's very poignant. And I think that ties back into what you were saying about you would do it if nobody was watching. And, and I have. Literally <laughs> have. Yeah. Oh, you get a, get a sip of water. Sort of, uh, there's two, there's two, th- I generally don't go into these conversations with any kind of agenda. Yeah. But in but your case, there's, on. there's one specific thing that I want to bring up and talk with you about just because I am a big fan of the history of performing arts and unusual performers and people who gain notoriety for doing things that are outside of the usual yeah you made something i did (laughs) and like got a little bit of notice for it and i i know i'm just totally throwing you a softball on this one but it, it is like it's just such a fascinating story and i would love it if you would tell i would be happy to um i i honestly never get to talk about this and i forget most of the time that it happened because it feels like a different person because it was Mm -hmm. a long time ago um actually like a couple days ago i was signing up for the couch surfing app and it was like what's something amazing you've done and i was like i don't know and i was like cayman what's something amazing i've done and cayman's like hey remember when you made that dress out of a thesaurus and i was like oh shoot shoot dang i did um okay so here's the story in whatever year it was when I was 21, which is this year minus seven. Even though I'm not 28, I will be in November. Please send me cards. Um, So 2012-ish, somewhere in there. That's math, right? It doesn't really matter. You can look it up if you want. Um, Google my name. I'm famous. My island does something called the Readers and Writers Festival. And they have done it, I think now is over their 10th year or something like that. Mm -hmm. They try to bring in uh, Canadian and British Columbia specific authors um, and have them come and either do workshops or read excerpts, excerpts, parts of their books um, or poetry to the audience and talk about what it is. And it's very like awesome community. So one of the organizers of it reached out to me and was like, Jory, you're our only performer. Please help us, um, which is not true, but is also kind of true. Um, and she was like, would you like to be the costumed character mascot? And basically the theme is bookworm and you just do whatever you like with it. You can put together a costume and uh, yeah, it's, you know, a year from now. So take your time. And I was like, sure, that sounds great. And she's like, we'll work out a payment. And like, you know, I was just doing it for kicks and I, mm-hmm. I love hanging out when there's something happening. And uh, later that year... I ended up going through a breakup and I moved into a a new space and there was new roommates and I just like was in Vancouver working a million jobs and not getting anywhere and going into debt and not really being able to work in the field that I had gone to school for, which is probably familiar to everybody who's listening to that. Um, Even though it was an art in this case, I went to school for acting. So I was not really satisfied in any way. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make my costume out of paper. Where did that idea come from? I don't really remember, but I was like, I'm going to do it. So I spent the next six months, I did a month and a bit straight, just folding and gluing paper. Um, I went to a thrift shop. I, I picked a book. I was looking for a dictionary, but they didn't have any. So I grabbed a thesaurus that had some nice yellowed pages. And I was like, this is perfect. Nobody is going to use this 30 year old book. I can repurpose it. Um, and then I, I made this dress that I just was really proud of because it was an accomplishment. It took me a really long time. Uh, and then I posted a picture on Reddit because I was like, look what I did. And Reddit was like, that's great. And it did the thing where it goes to the front page. And 
Um, it got really popular on Imager, and then people started stealing it and putting it on their own things. And then I started getting phone calls from like Huffington Post and CBC News and all these things, and people wanted to interview me. Um, and so there followed just a week of people caring and being really curious and being like, why would you make this? Uh And then the other half of the people being like, why would you destroy a book? So I had to like come up with all these like witty responses. Like, well, technically if you look at it, um, a thesaurus is a reference book, you know, it's, it's a resource. So I was using it as a resource to create art. Um, yeah, so that, that was basically it. It went insane. And then like at the end of the week, nobody cared. Uh-huh. And um, a week and a bit later, Ripley's, believe it or not, like emailed me and we're like, hey, we like your thing. We want to buy it. And I was like, great. Give me like three grand. And they were like, nope. And I was like, but you have millions. And they were like, how about 200? And I was like, that's nothing. And they were like, tell you what, we'll give you $450, a lifetime pass, a certificate you can show your friends. And maybe you'll be in a book or something. I don't know. And I was like, sure, why not? So now they have it. I don't know where it is. Um, They've had it for years. And the certificate remains in the envelope. It came in in a box of papers in my bedroom (laughs) in Canada. (laughs) I've never framed it. I've never put it on the wall. That is is just such a delightful story because, well, for one thing, I feel like flash in the pan internet fame moments yeah. always end horribly. Yeah. Like we find out the person is like a massive racist <laughs> or like, or they just kind of burn out or they try to like parlay it into like some ridiculous, like it's like the, the thesaurus dressed girl movie comes out like five years after anybody gives yeah. a shit. Everyone's like, fuck this person. But you just, it just seems like, I mean, when you talk about it, You've told me the story before, and when you talk about it now, it just seems like you just kind of have a pretty positive feeling about the whole experience. Like, it was just kind of I like do. this fun thing that happened. and It was it was great. Honestly, the, the weirdest thing about it was at one point I was like, I wonder what all the downvoted comments on Reddit say. And they said some pretty terrible things. And there was a couple of people who wanted to rape me, but only if my face was covered, which really bummed me out because I felt like I was at least full body rapeable, you know? <laughs> so like that that was kind of the only downer to that but other than that it was an amazing experience and like it is a really cool story to have and Uh it affected nothing in my life yeah absolutely nothing which is probably why you have a positive feeling about it that i mean whoever those dudes are like Mm They were just, they were so, the comments were so funny. It was like, 10 out of 10 would rape with a bag on her head. Okay, no one's asking you any of these questions that you're volunteering to answer for. That's like, I mean, if I were you, I'd probably put that as like the pull quote on my Fringe show coaster. Yeah. And like put the Reddit user's like username. This user on Reddit, because like, Uh, you know, you find out. Like, especially like, cause this was like seven years ago. It's like yeah. that dude's still on Reddit and now he's like a kindergarten principal or something. Oh my God, like... probably. Uh, thank you for sharing that story <laughs> with me. I, I love You're Ripley's welcome. Believe It or Not and Guinness World Records and all that kind of like sort of sideshow. You side want to go to a museum? I got a lifetime pass. I would love that. If yeah. we could go to the Ripley's Museum together sometime and maybe if you could leverage your, your, uh, your dress fame with them to like. Get me an interview with John T. Ripley the fifteenth or whoever's I like the successor. Because <laughs> that, that's something that always fascinates me. That there are things like Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, mm-hmm. or Ripley's Believe It or Not, that have outlived their creators by like a hundred years. Yeah, and they're still around, and the branding is still the same, and they're still like this thing. Yeah, and they have like executives of marketing now, and like yeah. weird shit like that. But like, who is running? Like, is it just kind of running on autopilot? Like, did the soul die fifty years ago, or is it like still a thing? Yeah, I have no idea. And like when they bought my dress, I was like, oh, where are you going to put it? They're like, well, right now it's in our warehouse. And uh-huh. uh, at some point, it'll hopefully make its way to a museum. And I'm like, you're just buying things to fill a space on the odd chance that you like want to use them. Yeah. Which is cool. <laughs> but they never like contacted me. So I don't even know if anybody out there has seen it and knows where it is. I'm not just. Let me know. I'm now just picturing you like 
at home, like in your sweatpants, like eating Chinese takeout from that place that we all went in uh, Nevada city that like Fred's. Yeah. <laughs> that place. Uh, but like you're sitting there and you're like eating Chinese takeout and then you like pop on YouTube and it's like, um, the Oscars, like the red carpet. And then all of a sudden like Kate Blanchett or somebody swans in and they're wearing the dress and you're like, God damn it. <laughs> I would lose my mind. I would be like, you only paid me 450. <laughs> But I, but like that seems like a possible scenario. Like it's For just sure. sitting in a box somewhere, yeah. and it ends up being the thing yeah. that gets used. Oh I was just God. making a new one. The one last question I want to ask you about is: Do you have influences or artists that you would recommend? So it doesn't necessarily have to hmm. be like anything. You know, it doesn't have to be like this comedian made me want to be a comedian or anything like that. But. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to get outside my comfort zone and engage with art that I wouldn't normally look at because a guest had recommended it or something like that. So do you have anything like that that you would just love to? Hmm. I'm going to be I'm going to be your disappointing person. Um, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that I'm like, this is the person I live for because I'm one of those people that I tend to, if I allow myself, I can get really obsessed with things and mm-hmm. I don't like to waste my time obsessing on things. So I just kind of let things come and go. But my suggestion for that would be find out where there is a local like stand-up open mic and go see what people are doing and see if you can find somebody around here that you like what they're doing. Because so many of these open mics we went to had people that like it is a really good learning process to watch other people do open mics because everybody is at different levels. Mm -hmm. So you end up with people who have, you know, an act that they've worked on for years or jokes that they've worked on for years. And then people who go up with a notebook and they're like, I wrote this today. And then they try it and they gauge their audience reaction. And I find that really valuable watching other people process and other people learn and other people like say something and, and then see how that reacts. Like, seeing how it hits, watching other people build things is inspiring to me. And that's not saying like I take notes and steal their jokes, mm-hmm. but it's like watching them go through the motions of all the things that I'm doing is encouraging in a lot of other ways and really inspiring because you're like, sometimes you see people fail, like epically fail. Like oh, there was yeah. this dude in St. Louis um, who did an entire five minute set that was just like old outdated racial stereotypes. And he was a white kid who was like 17 Mm -hmm. and he leaned into it so hard. Like he started it by talking about like how much sex he has with black women, basically. And everybody, the room was dead because nobody was into that. They were all like, dude, what? But he kept going and just everything was worse. It was like, as he went on, it was worse and worse and worse. And I'm watching this and I was like, you know, I do not admire what he is doing. But what I do admire about this kid is that he fucking sucks, but he's still out there doing it. He's still running through all the jokes he wrote down. He's looking at the audience, getting the feedback, not taking it, but he's actually like going through the motions, doing the process, doing that thing. Uh, And then when he was done, like nobody clapped and the, the host came on and just like talked shit about him for a minute and everybody felt better. But like even watching somebody epically fail or somebody do something that you're like, that's inappropriate. I look at that and I'm like, could you tell those jokes? in a way that it would be okay. I don't think you can, but you know, getting that perspective, like why does this kid want to tell those jokes? Could he tell those jokes in a way that were funny? Yeah. I don't think he could, <laughs> but maybe somebody could. Well, it's, it's that problem solving impulse that I think a lot of performers have, particularly performers who create and massage their own material. Yeah. Like you see it a lot with magicians that they refer to it as solving problems. Mm-hmm. So like, I want to get this card from my right hand to my left hand without anybody noticing. Yeah. How do I solve that problem? You know, it's sort of like, how do I, because I think oftentimes with comedians telling really inappropriate jokes, there's something in their heart that they're not expressing that they can't express. And it's in that area. And they are just trying to find a way to talk about something that often is unspeakable. Yeah. You know, it, it, and that's not an excuse and i'm not like advocating for like oh man we should just have like free racism comedy night or whatever yeah no but just it is it's it's incredibly instructive to watch somebody crash and burn super hard because you learn about what you would not do yeah and where you would not go 
Yeah, exactly. Also to see people trying stuff like that and succeeding, like you learn so much about that, about the world around you too. When someone like gets away with something. Yeah. And you're like, why are you laughing at that? Are we laughing at that? Because it's phrased in a way so that that person isn't the butt of the joke. The joke teller is the butt of the joke. Like it, I don't know. It's good mental math. Yeah. That's my recommend. That is actually a fantastic recommend because, you know, you could you could list off 10 essential comics that people should go listen to. But recommending that people go out and engage with something a little bit more personal and a little bit more uh, in real time, I think actually is really great because I think there's just not enough of that. Obviously, I perform live. You perform live. We love that. And we need people to come see us. So thanks for giving us all our recommendations. Yes. Thank you so much for appearing on the podcast, Jory. Please come back on anytime. All right. I'll come back through next time. So that was my chat with Jory Phillips. As Jory kind of mentioned during her set, she was opening for our friend Trevor. Next week's episode, you're going to get to hear Trevor's entire show and also a chat that Trevor and I had. So I hope you're all excited for that. For now, anyway, let's move on to our next segment. Here's a thought. Why on earth do people spoil the entire plot of a story in the trailer or the blurb on the back of the cover? Why? I just read the relatively straightforward and sometimes emotionally difficult The Last River by Todd Balfe. The book was an eye-opening look deep behind the scenes of a whitewater kayaking expedition into the deepest river gorge on earth. The book's front cover informed me that the expedition was doomed. The subtitle was The Tragic Race for Shangri-La. The back cover stated, and I quote, After losing their best paddler off an eight-foot drop into roaring rapids, three friends... From the open manner this information was presented, I assumed that this would happen relatively early in the narrative, and I would get an in-depth analysis of the aftermath, the recriminations, and the fallout such a tragedy would produce. Instead, the incident in question occurred on page 240 of a 281-page book. The reasons for this odd choice could have a variety of origins. Perhaps the editor or publisher just wanted to make sure the emotional punch was being sold up front. Perhaps it was the book's proximity to the events in question, since it was published less than two years after the event. But if so, I would have preferred the narrative be written with the central event being the pivot. Perhaps have the event be portrayed in the opening chapter and then do a Tarantino-esque flashback to the expedition's planning stages. I can understand the desire to tell a story in order, but none of the writing was geared around the inevitable tragedy. Instead, it was written as a straightforward travel-strike-adventure narrative without a hint of the darkness to come. I say without a hint because I had, of course, read the cover blurb. Here's another example. Movie trailers. I get that people have to sell a film they've made, but why spoil it to sell it? This is often due to the fact that the folks editing the trailer together are not the same folks who make the films. The most infuriating example of that comes to mind is the second trailer for How to Train Your Dragon 2. Much of the film's emotional punch is derived from the revelation of the identity of a newly introduced mystery character. Like Vader's revelation of his true history in The Empire Strikes Back, this new information has repercussions that echo back across the first film in the series, adding even more emotional weight to scenes we thought we understood. Whoever cut that trailer didn't get the memo, though. This major revelation is just dropped into the middle of the trailer like it's no big deal, and as a result, much of the film's emotional punch is muted. The directors and writers of the film even took to Twitter to warn anyone who would listen to avoid the trailer. See also Spider-Man Far From Home, Terminator Salvation, or The Mortal Engines. I'm not nearly as averse to spoilers as most folks. I don't think spoilers are the be-all slash end-all word on enjoyment of a story. If knowing what happens at the end and being surprised by a twist is the only reason to find a story worthwhile, you might want to reevaluate a story's quality. Seriously, Sixth Sense? Not that good. We've gotten to a point as a culture where film and literature critics have to field hateful comments from audiences who are angry that they gave away this or that small plot point in the course of their evaluation of a product's quality. And make no mistake, these films, books, TV shows, and YouTube videos are products. The fact that we place so much of our identity into a corporately owned story is... Okay, I'm getting in the weeds, and that's a topic for another time. Point is, just knowing the ending or some details about the way to the ending shouldn't 
spoil the experience of engaging with a story. Case in point, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. The whole plot is writ right there in that three-word title. A crime is committed and a punishment ensues. The deep pleasure of reading that book arises from the journey along the way. However, if the cover blurb gave me specific details of the mental state of the protagonist as the titular crime is committed, I might start to feel my saline levels rise. All I'm asking for is a level of promotional synergy, especially when the informative blurb is literally attached to the product in question. Maybe let's leave the spoilers off the box art and keep them in casual conversations with trusted friends. That might be the first small step toward a world where grown-ass people don't run screaming out of coffee shops because someone at an adjoining table said the word dragon. I need more coffee. Hokey Fright, have you heard about Tomorrow Never Dies? I know that a James Bond film is far from the little scene works I often feature in this segment, but have you watched that thing lately? I know the Brosnan era is remembered chiefly for introducing a female M, the well-regarded Goldeneye, Desmond Llewellyn's swan song as Q, and whatever the hockey puck's Die Another Day was doing. Oh, and I thought Christmas only comes once a year. Why? 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 Who? I get the dumb puns are a thing, but like, I just... I can't... Okay. I'm... Fine. Okay. 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 Tomorrow Never Dies has quite a bit going for it, though. The cast alone is incredible. Beyond the standard Bond players of Brosnan, Llewellyn, Dench, and uh, Bond, Moneypenny is played by Samantha Bond. <laughs> There's also Michelle Yeoh as a Chinese secret agent, Jonathan Price as an evil media mogul, Terry Hatcher as said mogul's wife who has a past with Bond, Gerard Butler plays a corpse, Oh, okay, he has one line, and then the boat he's on goes down, and he drowns, so he's actually a corpse for more time than he's a living character. The villain's henchmen in this are so much fun. Ricky Jay plays an evil computer hacker, horrible casting, and Vincent Chiavelli plays the world's most courteous assassin, perfect casting. Hugh Bonneville is also in this as Air Warfare Officer HMS Bedford, a hilarious bit part to see as I'd just watched Paddington the week before. But Jonathan Price steals the show. He's an evil media mogul bent on taking over the world with his media empire. Control the flow of information and you control the world. As Bond villain plans go, it's actually a pretty intelligent one. It even seems startlingly prescient when one considers the current world we live in today. Where it breaks down, though, is the lack of an internet component. Granted, this was 1997, but... Still. Like... This guy employs computer hackers, owns satellites, and is super into tracking, you know, GPS systems and hacking into them and whatnot. And yet, and yet, he just doesn't include internet news websites in his 65-point plan for world domination. What? Like, a big point in his empire is the fact that if he causes an incident, he can get it into the paper almost before it happens. Yeah, it's called Twitter, and it is evil. I know nobody could have predicted Twitter, but I just find it laughably hilarious that nobody involved in the movie ever thought to mention websites. He literally says things like, My newspaper is the future. Poor predictions aside, Bond films live and die by their villains and how much scenery they can chew, and Price is in fine form here. As pointed out by my Pilot House co-host Sarah Shea, Price can deliver lines like, Spare me the technobabble, as if a real person had said it. The other standout in this is Michelle Yeoh, playing Bond's Chinese counterpart. She even gets a fantastic hand-to-hand fight scene against a whole pile of dudes. According to the IMDb trivia for the film, they had to bring in a whole new stunt team to fight Yeoh because she had trained with Jackie Chan's stunt team in his style of full-contact screen fighting. The folks they hired? Her old pals from Jackie Chan's stunt team. I just love this story, the idea that Michelle Yeoh shows up on set and the stunt dudes are like, yeah... No. Pass. Not because we're afraid. I mean, maybe a little. Plus, this film has two Bond songs. The film's composer, David Arnold, was so angry he'd not been asked to work on the opening credits Bond song, sung by Cheryl Crow, that he wrote his own and put it over the end credits. I kind of think his fits better with the music, 
probably because he used the theme of the song as a leitmotif throughout the film. This might be one of the best cinematic FUs since Charlie Chaplin made a two-hour film making fun of the jackass who stole his mustache. I've heard the production on this film was a mess, but if we're being honest, shouldn't the production on a Bond film be a bit messy? I mean, the Bond franchise itself is a bit messy. Tomorrow Never Dies has all the things you want out of a Bond film. Action, suspense, stunts, casual misogyny, maniacal villains, a ticking clock, and amazing menswear. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week This week's song is called The Frozen Logger by James Stevens, and it draws from a lot of Paul Bunyan-esque imagery. Paul Bunyan is this kind of folk hero figure in the United States who is very tied to logging and you know, he was a giant, and there's all these stories about how his his griddle was so big when he made pancakes that the the grease was actually applied by normal-sized loggers who strapped bacon fat to their feet and then ice skated around on the griddle. You know, they're just tall tales like that. I first heard this song sung a cappella at a show by my friend Jenny Jenkins, who is an amazing uh, ukulele player and performer down in Olympia, Washington. She sang the song just kind of a cappella, and it was very haunting and and beautiful, even though the content is hilarious. So here's James Stevens's The Frozen Logger. And to this cafe I come 
And here I wait till someone stirs his coffee with his thumb. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. If you've got a comment or you want to ask me a question or you want to get rid of that really strange, like tiny ivory idol that your grandpa kept in the top drawer of his dresser, you can send all that stuff to Strangely. 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. Thank you so much to everyone on Patreon who supports this podcast. I am really trying to have these come out on a regular basis of four a month. I, I still haven't figured out what day of the week I want to have these come out on, and I'm trying to kind of get my schedule worked around that. But I appreciate your patience as these come out. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is produced in fairly fine, fiscally responsible Fairhaven, Washington and is located in the Morgan Block Building, part of the People's Land Trust. If you want to become a supporter of my podcast, you can head over to patreon.com strangely to find out more about how you can help me make more of whatever this is. Why can't a dinosaur shake your hand? Because they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's... All right, I'm just going to stop the recording now. <laughs> Thank you, Jory. You're welcome. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.